Hi, Sean McCracken, news editor for Hotel News Now, here with Jesper Palmquist of um, STR, the senior director of Asia Pacific, if I'm correct there, Jesper. Yeah, and I love the intonation on senior, obviously, it's, you know, how important titles are. No, but yes, that is absolutely correct. I think it's very, very important, Jesper, and I'm so (laughs) glad to be talking to you, especially you staying up late to talk to me. I, I truly appreciate the sacrifice you're making. Yeah, no, absolutely. Good to see you. Good to talk to you. So um, let's just tee this off to talk about what's going on across Asia Pacific. So what are the big high level trends that you think the folks on the other side of the world should know about what's going on on your side of the world? Yeah, it's a, a big topic. And I think I always come around to the fact that Asia Pacific, you know, not one country, right? It's many. It's both at mid and micro level. Uh, so many different stories. Uh, but it is it's good time for for that question because we all expected 21 and then 22 to be the year of recovering and change of patterns and stuff but it wasn't until this year right with some countries being delayed and that's when you see those really lasting effects in the industry and what a different positive mentality and that kind of stuff so it is valid now i think we're seeing things are changing in this second half of the year. If it did six months ago, it wouldn't be as as interesting, I think. So it's a lot of stuff around the region that are different. Um, I think just you look at the development and uh, tourism and travel, obviously uh, there's been tons of events that have just come back quickly. And I think the rest of the world are noti- noticing that. Uh, we see and feel a bigger presence of if we bundle the Western, if we bundle APAC first, we call them the Westerners, right? So everyone from out of APAC is definitely coming more to the region now again. Um, you know, not just say from an investor side, but just in terms of everything, like in tourism and an in interest and uh, leadership. And that's obviously not just in our industry, it's across everything from finance and other real estate, et cetera. So I think there's a bigger interest and come back and seeing that this is a market that can reboot well um, and has that potential and the great opportunity. Everyone was keen on Asia and and, and the Pacific for a long time. So it's interesting to see what stays the same now versus what doesn't. And we, I, I'm curious always around what the, the we had some some small micro changes that we saw before the pandemic how many of those are actually happening. For instance, say the Indian uh, as a source market, as a growth market, as an economy, how, and that's definitely taken off big time. India is <laughs> was starting to become a big topic. And so I think many are talking about India, it just go back five years, people weren't really looking that much as a foreign FDIs and, and like building brands and that kind of stuff. But I think that's something that is happening more before we spend a bit of time on China, which is a topic yes. in itself. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that's that's the million dollar question or the, I guess, billion dollar question here for this conversation is what is going on in China? And and when do we get to a point where things start to maybe normalize a little bit there? Yeah, it's an, an interesting thing on the normalizing, right? Because you can ask, and I have asked, and I'm, I'm in China next week, uh, traveling around, and there'll be a number of trips as I just renewed my my great uh, extended visa. So I'm happy I can fly in and out much easier now. Uh, mm-hmm. If you ask people up there, it's definitely domestically in terms of it's such a different story what you read in, in Western media. 
and the <laughs> economy is in free fall if you read other media right and our industry and others are absolutely it's all failing but this summer was just a tremendous summer in travel mm -hmm. in in and also in investment and kind of hedging and and keep growing and people were everywhere and we just come out of the golden week as well which was a a very large travel week eight day holiday together with the 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 mooncakes and the moon festival so it was it was big so i think the if you ask someone in china they're gonna say like well it's back it's back mm -hmm. and well beyond in some cases i mean they have more flight capacity now domestically than they had before the pandemic and they have more trains than ever right and more sites and better infrastructure so it's kind of like i don't understand the question but mm -hmm. of course anyone who is keen on seeing cross border travel and, and if you ask people in hong kong it's a different story if you ask it in macau it's booming but in hong kong it's not quite there and it's that slow effect on some of the some of those markets that i suppose no one really expected that it takes a bit longer than we all thought um because it opened so much later uh, as well yeah, the interesting thing about China from a Westerner's perspective is I remember early on in the pandemic recovery, we were all looking at China as like, well, there's six months ahead of us in this recovery. Let's use them as a marker. And now it feels like the that's kind of flipped, like they're like a bit behind us in the recovery. So I, I do wonder how accurate that perception is now, because I think over here we saw, you know, for a while we had this huge boom in American domestic travel. And now all the hoteliers this last summer are like, well, this is so much softer because everybody's going to Europe now. Is it kind of the same thing with China? Are we seeing the the domestic travel boom? And then we can see that outbound traveler again in the not the medium term, maybe? Yeah, and it's kind of twofold. The first part is is twofold to your point. As they came back so quickly on that domestic scene before they then shut it down very severely. They had that period where they were the only ones open and running while the rest was. So they was completely flip-flop throughout this time period. Mm -hmm. But when they open and when they do it, like in Q1 this year, it it was, I suppose in many other countries, well, but it was just the tremendous speed and at that scale, it it just supercharges everything so they come back very quickly on that domestic travel it was a tier one city so your shanghai beijing guangzhou and shenzhen the big ones that naturally would be slower these are 20 million people cities uh, so that that would take a little bit longer up until may and the the, the second big holiday but again the, the travel was so big because they got all the logis logistics going around the country um so that recovered well and they've been doing really strongly and that feeds into the other markets i suppose the difference there to say the us where you had the the leisure destinations and that which china also had here the difference was the provincial capitals the engines of each of the provinces they kept they came back really strongly too so say in Chongqing, the the, the detroit if you will of china with the auto manufacturers that kind of stuff that those big cities had to come back and they did for mm -hmm. the midweek and all the leisure markets. Because, you know, a couple of years ago, we only talked about Sanya, uh, the, uh, the the leisure markets and some of those and Tibet and other markets and Xinjiang. But the cool thing is 
I don't know. You can almost say that in the U.S. I suppose it's also a big country, but China has a big uh, domestic long haul. Yeah, which is which just makes things stand out because it's not just the one two hours. It's you know five hour flights to get somewhere. That's it's a big long haul trip, and when you have that both that intrastate, it's just the scale of it make a comeback. Once it starts, it 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 really creates that uh, really big boom across the entire place. So they're kind of they come back in so many aspects, but the out, the trickling effect of the outbound. Uh, we always said that that's going to be low and slow and keep coming. And you know which con- country is going to come first, right? So the ones that they were on the A list first, and the ones that mm-hmm. maybe wanted it more, depended on it more. But that's when we're talking, say, the group travel, which was opened a couple of months ago, right, for everyone. Uh, and also the FIT, which is eating into that share. So it is more individual Chinese who are traveling than ever before. Mm-hmm. Even if it's still a large uh, group section, but take something like students, right? Chinese students were shut down for a while, but that came back quickly. Mm-hmm. And that's a you know multi multi million dollar business, and they came back to Australia quite quickly before tourism started. Yeah. So there's so many different layers and segments around that, mm-hmm. um, and how how they come back. I think the folks, the American hoteliers who might be listening to this, just want to know when they're coming when they're coming back to Hawaii and California. Really, like that. Yeah. I think that drives the maybe negative perception of China more than anything here is, which is waiting for them to come back. Yeah, and I, I mean the 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 worst part of that is all our indications is that U.S. on that large scale is going to be one of the last ones mm-hmm. in in terms of the scale, which makes sense from a couple of reasons. One. And let's leave geopolitics kind of out of this because it yeah. has some effect, sure. But the biggest part is, again, has been for a long time the flights that we're missing the the long haul flights. I mean, look at interesting trends. How we're still Australian flights, for instance, travel in and out there. Uh, that's taking on Southeast Asia was always going to be the the quickest one together with Japan and Korea. But Europe are starting to get um, a lot of new flights coming in and out as well. I saw. Shenzhen flying new direct flights to to Milan and things like that. So they're that's connecting more to European capitals than the same way want it, right? So mm-hmm. your Paris, your Venice, and all those tourism cities starting to see it more. So all those normal flights. Having said that, I suppose on the flip side, the Chinese airlines and the Western airlines as well are starting to pick up uh, flights over to the U.S. more. There are direct flights now that are happening, but it's more connecting still, I would say, yeah. when I look at it. So dependent. Like through Korea, through Japan, or through Europe, when I look across American and Delta and, and United, it's the good thing now, though, the price on flights for someone from China is lower compared to the other long haul destinations that's still yet to go down. Or, so, um... Are restrictions on Russian airspace impactful for that, or is that more noise than anything? No, but that that's a great question because it it is for everyone else apart from China and Russia. So mm-hmm. I tell you one cool thing: so I hear more about you know Europeans always go to Thailand over the summer and Americans mm-hmm. too, but obviously mm-hmm. a little bit further away. Um, it takes longer, and the flights are more awkward now because you have to go around that and go south, so the flights is longer and and the price a bit higher. So what happens is Air China and other airlines then start going, well, just fly north instead. 
stop down, maybe in China, maybe in Beijing or Shanghai or something. And it's visa free if you do within 72 hours or 144 and go to a third country after that. <laughs> and you can get really good flight deals and it's a shorter route. So they're benefiting from it, the fact that it's exclusive, uh, whereas other countries definitely it has an impact when you come from the European side. Mm -hmm. So just shift gears a little bit. You mentioned how um, things are lagging a bit in Hong Kong. And I wonder how that compares to where you're at in Singapore, whether that's an issue with like kind of the international business hub cities or whether that's Hong Kong specific or where where are you at? Yeah, Hong Kong is... Um, very special in that because of being so dependent on the mainland, uh, people coming over. But Singapore is booming, and mm -hmm. a lot of the markets in Southeast Asia are booming as well. And Tokyo is is absolutely doing well as well in the cities. But Singapore has been really for about a year. And what's interesting is, as with everywhere everywhere else, the rates were kept going up and kept going up, and mm -hmm. while. And we can get back to that in a second, just how that impacted the bottom line and the owner conversation, which is really interesting how that's changed over the last quarter. But as that kind of comes in, behind all that rate and all the events and the Taylor Swift, et cetera, the occupants, you think you were so dependent on the Chinese? Chinese air corridor to Singapore uh, is the most recovered one out of all outbound, where 85% of those flight seat capacity back. Mm -hmm. Everyone, I mean, US is what, 10, 15%? So, yeah. and others lie there around 50. So, and that makes sense, right? Singapore has a, a long standing and a, a healthy relationship in that and with having 70, 75% of the population of Chinese ancestry. So, it is getting that back really quickly every month the arrivals are growing. I see it on the streets here in Singapore. Uh, there's a lot mm -hmm. of mainlanders that are coming in this year. So they were maybe less dependent than I thought because other markets like India would come in and start spending money and the hotels are doing okay with that and F&B as well. But when the Chinese start coming extra, it becomes kind of a, like an extra pot. It, it yeah, grows yeah. there. And it's not just in China. It's in, in Indonesia and Jakarta as well, which is seen as more affordable to mm -hmm. the Chinese to go around there and, and forever popular Thailand uh, and Vietnam as well. Uh, starting to see that. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned India, obviously, earlier in this conversation. And I know that there's been kind of um, this fleeting hope for years and years for India, much like, you know, Brazil and on, you know, in the Americas to kind of finally crack that nut and get mm -hmm. these huge amount of potential travelers like for all the international international brands. Like, do you see is this the moment for that to actually happen or is that a little there too is hopeful? Yeah, I mean, maybe, uh, yeah, let's not put too much uh, spin on it, but it's definitely a shift. Um, we, every, for the past 10 years, when we were talking to Ateliers in, in India and how it was growing and the homegrown brands are so strong, right? And the yeah. product is, it has this love for hospitality and the luxury and then oil came along and, and produced something new and I have Trebo and all that. It's a brand new market. At, and I hate comparing India and China, it's never really a good idea, but it's interesting from the aspect of how China is really just 20, it's about 23 years old in terms of mm -hmm. modern hospitality since yeah. the birth of your sea trip and, and, and all the hotel brands. And India, which has such old and legacy brands in a, in a good way, but 
it's been rejuvenized in the last 10 years and what's happening in new brands and the need because of the growing middle class. So when you have a 1.3 billion population and that new middle class that wants to travel and experience things across that great country, but also abroad, of course it gains attention, mm-hmm. not just from them, but I, it's all from an investment perspective, you know, with Japan always going to be interesting. Um, that's mm-hmm. one of the countries where we've seen the most deals, I suppose, this year when we're waiting on more deals. Mm-hmm. When you have your uh, GIC, your Blackstone, et cetera, that have gone in and, and bought more in Japan. And that changes how the Japanese do hotel management and operating mm-hmm. hotels. Um, obviously, we've seen Brookfield and others going into India. It'd be interesting to see. I think I think we are at the cusp of, of some kind of change in there because for the longest time, we didn't see rate moving much in India. And we've definitely seen that. Yeah. Right. So it commands, which makes sense, it commands a higher value. It's it's better products and more mature market. Uh, and I mean, India, you mentioned the, the BRICS. I mean, they took G20 from India, uh, from Indonesia. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of publicity as yeah. well around it. People are opening their eyes to the new Indian tourism in a way as well, right? Mm-hmm. All right. So I'll ask about another big Asian country. What's what's going on in Japan right now? Um, is it back to normal? Is it closer to normal? Yeah. Throughout the pandemic, we talked a lot about the kind of the, the bifurcated setup of how you have the big three popular destinations, your Tokyo, Osaka, and Kyoto, that mm-hmm. obviously didn't have the Chinese tour groups or the Koreans or the, the Asians or anyone, while the second tier and the other regional markets did well because they were never dependent Mm -hmm. on international tourism. Yeah. So I still come back to this. What I feel like it was 18 months ago or something when we did, we did, there was a survey going out to the Japanese population, right? Mm -hmm. Where should we reopen? And a lot of people like 65% said, no, don't reopen. (laughs) Mm -hmm. We're good as we are, right? Which it's telling what happens to the pandemic, but this is not 1603 or whenever they shut down Mm -hmm. uh, 400 years ago. So Mm -hmm. when they reopened, you start seeing all these flights come in and obviously it it works really well. It is Mm -hmm. uh, from a occupancy and kind of filling up hotels it's very close in many markets like tiny percentage missing and that's on the backdrop of adding a lot of new hotels mm-hmm. because they are building and it was at the peak cycle of delivery for asia pacific right now we're in peak of delivery kind of in 23 24. so and then add to that how just the rates have been going the the trick there is everywhere else is how that um the productivity and the, the the cost has increased as well. But what we're seeing so far that the growth of the cost, which I think is similar to the US, how the growth of the cost subsided a bit. And even if it's growing, it, it was growing slower than the, yeah. the revenue cost, right? And I, mm-hmm. I was waiting for that and hoping that that would happen for Japanese and other Asian operators and owners. And it seems to be going that way so far. Mm-hmm. So Japan is... Yeah, they got some deals back. Everyone's interested because it's it's such a good market to buy and own hotels in, um, mm-hmm. for sure. Everyone wants to get in there. So I'm just curious, as somebody who um, keeps an eye on the entire region, do you think that there's anything, maybe a smaller trend or just a storyline that you're picking up right now that, that might be a little bit overlooked that you think is really interesting? Oof. <laughs> yeah, the, the nugget, yeah. Um, well, I mean, it... 
the short answer is no, it's the same as it was before in terms mm -hmm. of if you want to get in on like the, your Japan, your Singapore, your Australia is kind of those interesting markets for a good return for an established investor or something to do it. But if, if Vietnam was for a long time, had that bullet. And Vietnam mm -hmm. got a lot of attention, a lot of new hotels and gone through a tough period. And finally now in the last quarter, I've started to come back strong. But the, it was also a lot of political challenges in the country as well and, and cleaning up uh, in the infrastructure of that. But so pockets, I mean, there are still, I mean, Thailand will always remain popular, but if I look around certain markets and stuff, it's, you know, if if you ask someone from say Indonesia and they was like, oh yeah, the there are five markets outside Bali that have tremendous potential. Mm -hmm. But then you better be prepared and ready to know how to invest and operate mm -hmm. in in Indonesia, which yeah. is, you know, maybe not for everyone. So and the Philippines is starting to move as well and starting to see a new product in markets like Cebu, uh, which, you know, popular for diving and everything that for a long time didn't have a lot of new products. But they've started to see that now as well more. And I think that that's another trend that I was looking at from from a year ago now is that it's not just the traditional hotel owners or the family money and all that, but also seeing people who only traditionally invested in other asset classes. Mm -hmm. They're starting to go, like, okay. Let's in, divert a bit and go into the hotel space. So we got some new investors and owners that contribute to funds, et cetera, and go in and, and invest in hotels. And I think they naturally will look at those markets that we talked about already, mm -hmm. rather than going, hey, how about a third tier Myanmar market or something, yeah. right? Probably not ready for that level of volatility. No. <laughs> All right. Well, any any last words in this conversation, Jesper? Anything we've overlooked? Well, one thing I, I thought about, we mentioned that earlier on the PL. One of the interesting conversations with the owners is back to that point on if there was such a big change on how you manage the the balance sheets. And it was always this like, hey, increase your productivity even before the pandemic, right? And from, I suppose, governments and, and owners, this is such an enforced productivity improvement that yeah. happened. So we now run, what, 60% of staff and it somehow works. Now, <laughs> separate to that is, of course, what does that mean to staffing and health of staffing and like yes. how that actually holds up in the long term? But from a pure financial standpoint, of course, when now DOP margins are back and we're seeing DOP per available room and all that is growing over mm -hmm. historic levels, then uh, it, when cost is managed so well, clearly the owners are going, okay. So I think a lot of the budgeting conversations to 24 and 25 is, okay, we're not just expecting this kind of growth. There's a different... I think the gap, just like we always talk about the gap between the buyer and seller, the gap between yeah. that expectation and the delivery is a little bit bigger is mm -hmm. what I'm hearing more and more. That is interesting. And I mean, obviously, you're you are correct. GOP and, and burnout are two different things, as is yeah. GOP and like customer service scores, right? Like you can cut down to the bones and make a lot of money, but um, nobody's going to be happy other than you. No, and that's the thing, right? But you got so and you got at the same time. We've got so many new hotels, a lot of new products 
that are opening right now. Mm -hmm. So some markets will, of course, be impacted by that, but it means that, you know, to fill them up with staff is really hard and you want yeah. to give them the best experience. But at the same time, these are well, very often brand new products, so they will offer something attractive inherently. Mm -hmm. So I think they kind of get away with that in a way. If you know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah, is that a is that a long term thing or a short term thing? Like you said, and what's the labor pay pipeline across the region too? There's yeah, there's a lot of concerns there. It it is. I mean, that's the thing that you can open any event with in any conversation. I think anyone in the U.S., regardless of market, will recognize that with, and that's very similar here. And I, mm -hmm. you know, remember like a while back, we didn't have there was some things that were so different, but I'd say there's a lot of similarities in it now. Yeah. China is one of the markets that is different because of just took so long and is kind of closed down and so tremendously strong without that inbound and outbound at a big flow. But everyone else, you see a lot of similarities uh, mm -hmm. between the other countries. Uh, there's a competitive space in in the events um, when, when everyone is having an event and everyone's doing concerts and everything. The competition in that is also one of the uh, much fiercer, I think, uh, and more interesting than before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Well, Jesper, this has been a wonderful conversation and I feel significantly more informed than I was a half an hour ago. So I thank well, you for that. That's just insane. And you know everything. So I don't know how that works. I man. do not. That's <laughs> it's verifiably untrue. <laughs> All right. Well, I really appreciate it. And thanks for the time. Thank you, Sean. Hi, I'm Isaac Colazzo, Vice President of Analytics at STR. Hi, and I'm Jan Feitak, National Director for Hospitality Analytics for the Coastal Group. Tune in to our new show, Tell Me More, a hospitality data podcast. It's a podcast on the global hotel industry, its current trends, what we're thinking about, and where the industry's going. And we like to have fun with the data, too. Find us on hotelnewsnow.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe today. Thank you for listening to the Hotel News Now podcast. This episode was recorded on October 9th, 2023, and edited by Sean McCracken. Go to hotelnewsnow.com for industry news every day.